This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. Today, I have with me Lewis Heaton, who is an ag producer, an all-around interesting guy, and a mentor in the North Dakota Grazing Land Coalition. And as I've mentioned several times on the podcast before, I find a lot of my guests through LinkedIn and I, and I saw Lewis's uh, profile and I realized that I, we really hadn't had a producer or a grazing interest on the, pack, on the podcast yet. And so I really wanted to just have Lewis on and just kind of ask some questions about his operation and what he does. And I'm kind of interested in the Grazing Coalition in North Dakota because grazing is a, a big part of what we do here in Utah. It's a big part of the Western landscape. And I just was kind of curious about, you know, current best practices and, and who's involved in those activities today. So with that, Lewis, if you wouldn't mind, would you mind just giving our listeners just kind of a little background of who you are and kind of the activities you're involved in? Sure. Thanks. I'm an egg producer here in, in North Dakota. We own and operate a, a fairly large livestock and grain operation. And uh, we do a lot of grazing. And over the years, I've been a member of the North Dakota Grazing Land Coalition. And we do a lot of workshops and different things to try to improve our grazing practices. And just in the last two or three years, you know, we've really evolved a lot. You can see a lot of things that have happened for climate change and carbon sequester and the whole setup of uh, ecosystem services. So that's a big part of it. Um, We also farm some, uh, have a lot of other interests too, but grazing is one of the things we work hard on to try to improve our our land, uh, try to build our organic matter, uh, not only take care of the livestock, but we also uh, have changed a lot of the wildlife scene for the better too. So that's kind of a brief description of what I do. All right, great. So a lot of different activities to give you a, a fair amount of different perspectives and kind of the ag community. Great. So Lewis, some of our listeners, our listeners kind of scan the the gambit of, um, you know, water professionals from kind of the engineering side, uh, the academic side, we have a lot of water users, you know, for someone who's kind of newer to kind of like the producer side, could you just kind of give us just like an elevator pitch of kind of like what your livestock operation looks like? If you rolled up in a truck, you know, or a car (laughs) to your operation, kind of like, what would you see? What would you find? And kind of what are the day-to-day activities um, of that operation consist of? Well, hopefully you see happy cows and you see uh, a lot of good grass. Now this year with the drought, it's it's been a challenge for a lot of the producers here in North Dakota, but with the improved management systems that a lot of us have put in with the rotation grazing and changing scenes of use, proper water placement, you know, it's kind of like a a chain. You, You build one piece and add it to another and try to move forward and and uh, make a, a better picture financially for your ranch and also for uh, taking care of the land. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that we see happy cows. <laughs> Everybody loves happy cows. <laughs> okay. So t- 
to give some perspective for the listeners, I want to talk here in a moment kind of about like the new items that that you just listed, because I think, you know, there's actually quite a few things packed into that simple sentence. But to give us some context and some background, traditionally, how does a grazing operation operate? What have been kind of the practices kind of like if you looked like 50 years back, like how many cows do you have per acre? Where are these cows, you know, grazing? If you were kind of going to do like a grazing 101 of kind of traditional practices um, prior to kind of some of the new things that you're doing today, what would that look like? Sure. Well, 50 years ago, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, I actually did see some of those things 50 years ago. Okay. So since I, that is within my age range, but you know, mm-hmm. most of the, at that time, most of the time when spring turnout came, ranchers would take their herd to a pasture and they would stay there all year for the most part. And you would have them in the same fenced in areas, you know, could be large, but in the, the old thought back then was to try to take half the grass and leave half the grass, which is a good starting point. Now, today we do things a little bit different. And some of the things that we've tried to do is is to try to balance livestock production more with what our area here in the Northern Plains had naturally, uh, which involves things like calving in the open later in the season uh, when the weather is much better rather than trying to do your calving in barns and the spring thaw when you have mud and things, which makes it a lot easier for the cattle and also a lot easier for the labor part and the management of the cattle. And today we do, as, as we move forward, you know, we have tried to mimic some of the things like how the buffalo used to graze when they were on the Great Plains. Uh, you would have a large herd that would move from spot to spot. And once they grazed a spot off, they probably wouldn't come back again till the next year. And then, and the cycle was they would have a different spot each year that they would start with because the grass is different. And we try to mimic that. We move herds and pastures and we kind of watch what kind of removal we have of the forage and move them to a new spot. And in my own personal management, you know, we try to move cattle. It's anywhere from two days to two weeks. They don't stay. Oh, very long. that's a, a really time. quick turnaround. That's a, that's a not of, very long. Two days is not very long. No, no, it's not. And that's the smaller pastures. And we, the whole thing about livestock industry and I don't care who you are, but you have to control your costs. You know, you mm-hmm. have to be, you have to be one of the lowest cost producers. And you try to, we try to do these improvements with what we have. If you mm-hmm. can split a pasture into two or four different pastures and you have water that's available. Water is the expensive part to develop. And if you can make that work, it's a, it's a really, really profitable thing for your bottom line. Plus it's a, it's really good for the ecosystem too. You have a lot of wildlife benefits to your grazing. When you take, when you only graze a pasture for like two weeks a year, Mm -hmm. and then you let it, you let it rest and grow and it, gives a place for wildlife to be because you know we don't we don't high fence wildlife they go to places they want to be yeah when you see rangeland with more wildlife on it you you've done some somebody has done something that has improved that and it's one of the also benefits because i know one of the issues we have here in the west and this might be my kind of more of an issue of kind of like open land grazing but is is water quality degradation and so, you know, we have a lot of problems kind of like in our, you know, here in Utah, it's a very dry state and we have not very many water sources and we have a lot of open public land that has grazing leases on it. 
And we do see a lot of those small streams being degraded by just, you know, honestly, cattle coming down to drink, you know. And so have you also seen like water quality improvements on your properties through kind of this we, like rotational grazing? Sure, we have, you know, in, especially in the hot part of the summer, you know, livestock will go if they're head close to water, like a, a creek or something, they will go spend their time there. You know, mm-hmm. it's just the way they naturally would do it. And what we've done in places where we can, it it, it is a expensive projects and, you know, takes a lot of um, management and, and um, proper placement to put, you know, T- different tanks in different places with and pump the water in from a different source, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and keep them off the stream banks. And as we move forward, I think that's going to be something that's probably you're going to see more and more of that. So you have basically kind of like standalone troughs that have some kind of you said like a pump system. Right. So you're not like yeah, trucking. I, I, I had installed one here this year, and uh, there's no power there. It's it's pretty remote, and we put a large solar panels up. Mm-hmm. And it really works pretty good in, in this country for summer time because obviously the more sunlight you have, the the harder it will pump. Mm-hmm. And that's when they use the most water too. So that uh, there's a lot of things you can you can do. It, like I said, it's all a piece of your puzzle you have to put yeah. together one piece at a time. And how much, I mean, like what's kind of the volume of water that you would need to have? I want to say distributed infrastructure, which is kind of like a, a technical term for, you know, distributed infrastructure <laughs> but that's kind of well, what this is you have a well, remote, this one, remote tank one place mm-hmm. where i have the rotation there's 200 pairs there and we put a that has a 13 and a half gallon a minute pump with the size solar panels on there it will run that 13 and a half gallons a minute in direct sunlight mm-hmm. so it, it keeps up fine mm-hmm. and then is there like a float on it that kind of stop i mean how yes. big is yep. the tank there's a there, there, there's a float on it that turns it on and off you know depending on how the you know, as soon as it gets full, it'll shut off. And how big is the tank? Because you said 200 pairs of cattle is kind of what the... Right, the there's... Batch. That's mm-hmm. got two 2,000-gallon 2, tanks there. Okay, so that's yeah. not a small tank. <laughs> right, and then and then if we go larger, we, you know, we, we'd have to put more tanks on there or put some kind of a uh, another upright tank beside it so you can have some more storage. Mm-hmm. So in moving these kind of cattle around in the rotation, you know, two to two weeks, I mean, how many pastures are you moving them then throughout the entire grazing season? Like, you know, so if I'm total novice to grazing, kind of walk us through like the life cycle of like the grazing season, like kind of where you start and how long it is and, you know, how many pastures you might, you know, move your cattle through. Sure. Well, we start you know, usually up here in, in the North Dakota, unless you're on, if you're on native rangeland, we usually start somewhere at the end of May and they'll come off, you know, mid-October probably. But, you know, each year is different. Now, this year we had with as dry as it was, of course, we held the our turnout date some and we will have to, we will have to take them off early because the, you know, your native rangeland can only do so much. And we probably only had 40 to 50% production this year. Mm-hmm. And if we don't break this drought this fall, you know, we'll be down to 10 or 20%. So there's some hard decisions people will have to make, you know. Mm-hmm. And when you say this hard decision, that means you're bringing your cows to slaughter earlier? They <laughs> would, they would have, you'd, well, you have a lot of options, you know, you can uh-huh. sell them, you can, uh-huh. you can move them to a different place where there's, you know, grass, which mm-hmm. is really hard to find in the West this year, or, or you can feed them. And Mm -hmm. there will be some of that, you know, our crops here that did not make, you know, a grain harvest, you know, there's a tens of thousands of acres of sawage being cut here. That's 
doesn't have any grain on it, you know, so mm -hmm. that's corn that is. So it's, um, it, it'll help, but you know, you can only do so much and it's a, you know, matter of economics on how people want to do it. But if you, if you overgraze that native rangeland, that's not a one-year thing. You're, you're going to have a reduced production for many years. And that's one of the things that we work hard with the coalition is to try to have ranchers understand just how much you can remove without running into serious problems. Mm -hmm. So the droughts definitely impacted your operations in the sense that you have, you know, less forage for your animals. So they can kind of be out a shorter period of time. And then you have to kind of supplement on the back end of your season through one of the means you just said, you know, selling them or feeding them in a feedlot, I'm assuming is um, right. mm -hmm. the options. And so to not overgraze that rangeland and keep it in a good state. You mentioned earlier that you guys are also experimenting with like carbon sequestration activities. Because one of the things I think of too is that you're very right that economics are the driver of everything. And so if you're telling ranchers that, you know, you can't overgraze your, your lands and that's going to have an economic toll on them. One of the themes of the podcast that we talk a lot about are kind of like alternative income streams for, for ag producers. And so are you guys experimenting with carbon sequestration on, on rangelands as part of a, a revenue stream? Or we are, we're, work, of, we're okay. working with some, we're, we're working with some projects on that through the grazing land coalition and i personally am working on some things on my own too mm -hmm. and it's a you know just to make it simple anytime you can build organic matter in your soil you're this is just my own opinion i i, I didn't write a paper on this but mm -hmm. anytime you can increase organic matter you will increase your carbon sequestration and in this drought that we have if you if you remove too much grass and, and don't leave enough growth there to get regrowth quickly when you when you change or when we finally break the drought, you're actually going to probably lose carbon on that side. And we try not to do that, you know, because if you organic, I, I would put organic matter in like, you know, a piece of rangeland has a value, you know, maybe it's a thousand dollars an acre, whatever it is, fifteen hundred. But you know, the the organic matter also has a value. Mm -hmm. And if you can double your organic matter, you know, you will probably double the value of your, an acre of your land. You know, that, that's my own thought. You can, you could probably turn that thousand dollar an acre land into $2,000 an acre land with, with proper management because you've, you've increased your organic matter. You can grow more forage and have a few more cows. You've also benefited the wildlife. You've increased your carbon sequestration. You've done all the things on the ecosystem services that, mm -hmm. that are good. And now outside just kind of the intrinsic benefit of having kind of healthier rangeland, are you actually getting to the place of, of working with third-party partners who are interested in, in carbon sequestration credits or maintaining that carbon in the ground for kind of climate purposes? Is that, um, are those that, activities the coalition's experimenting with? That is part of it. It's kind of the wild, wild west out there in <laughs> Yes. In the in the carbon market right now, yes. you've got a whole list of people that want to broker carbon. Uh -huh. They want to buy it from producers and they want to package it up and sell it to a funder. But the one problem we have is we're getting closer to know what a what a ton of carbon's value is. Mm -hmm. But it's still it like last year, you know, the range was somewhere between two dollars and two hundred a ton. Well, that's a pretty wide range. So mm -hmm. when we understand a little bit more about 
what its value is and how much carbon we can sequester in rangeland in, in say, a year in mm-hmm. normal conditions, then we know more about how we can market it. And are you working with any kind of like extensions through like uh, North Dakota State University to answer some of these questions? Or is it primarily just like directly with these interested brokers? The uh, universities have some people working with this and they've done uh, some projects to to kind of give an idea what's there. And we've worked with some of them too. And and we work with the funders and, and we also work with uh, different researchers. Now we have several, the North Dakota Grazing Land Coalition has a has an alliance with a PhD soil scientist that has worked hard on trying to uh, determine carbon sequestration, how it works, how much you can get, how much uh, different practices change the amount of carbon you can sequester. So we're we have a we have a pretty good in-house person for that on our own. Oh, that's awesome! That's great. And so, how big is the coalition? I mean, how many how many members are there of the of, of the coalition right now? Well, we have about thirty mentors, and then we have we have several hundred people that are involved with the with the coalition. But we have thirty in the mentorship program. There's thirty some, I guess, which is mm-hmm. uh, quite a few for our, for our organization. Yeah, and you said uh, and several hundred members. Yes, that's a pretty large coalition. Yeah, it. It's uh, you know, it, it varies, and we we try to increase our numbers as much as you can. You know, the more the more people you have interested in it, the the more things you can do. So then, are these typically, you know, sitting in this kind of mentor type position? You know, what are kind of some of the trends you're seeing in the coalition members? Because I know one thing that we're dealing a lot with here in the state of Utah, and I think most Western states are, is just demographic change in our agricultural community you know, just the natural, you know, people getting older and, you know, it's a hard life and, and, you know, wanting to do something different and younger people wanting to get into it, but also having, you know, struggling with kind of land value prices. And so there's kind of constraints on kind of all over the place. And I'd be really curious for someone who's involved with so many folks who are interested in grazing, kind of, what are you seeing as kind of like the trajectory of, of the trade and the practice? Well, the de- you're right. The demographics have changed and are changing a lot, even here in North Dakota. Of course, you know, we border Montana and the change that we've seen in Montana in the last two years, especially with this pandemic, you've got a lot of corporations that have moved their, well, they've moved their headquarters to Montana, uh, a lot of tech companies. And so it's changed the demographics a lot, you know, and those people are interested in different things. And it's kind of changed the way we think about what rangeland is and what, what it should be used for. You know, it is always a good place to raise animal protein, but there are so many other things that can do also. And some of those economically may be things that we may have to look at in the future, whether it's, you know, hunting lands or land that has enough scenic value for photography or just general nature things, you know, that people want to see. So. Yeah. Kind of more the, the implicit intrinsic values of the land for land's sake. Right. Yeah. And so kind of what, you know, of your coalition members on the North Dakota side of that border, are you seeing a younger generation come up and want to take over traditional grazing practices? We do. And, and technology is a, uh, it's an interesting thing, and it's moving so fast now. I wouldn't say maybe so much on the rangeland side, but on the on the farming side, mm-hmm. technology is like moving so fast that it's it. To me, it's almost scary. You know, <laughs> myself as a 
seeing the rest of my career, you know, I could see us with robotics and autonomous tractors and grain carts, and, you know, one person can do a tremendous amount, you know. Uh-huh. So tell me more about the autonomous tractors. It's interesting, you know, and I, you know, I have, I have my own combine, but I also do higher combines too, but it's always been kind of interesting to me. I have to pull up, you know, when I, I work pretty much alone myself when I combine they're available and they're they're getting affordable where you can have an autonomous tractor pull that grain cart beside you and take it and unload it into the truck and it won't be long and you, you know how fast autonomous steering got in, in vehicles like Tesla, you know. Mm-hmm. So oh, it's gonna move fast. Fascinating. But that makes it even lonelier. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a yeah, it is, you know, the, the labor thing is has got that that is the thing that in ranchers too, there is a the shortage of labor. People that you know, when I was when I grew up, a lot of people knew how to work with cattle, uh-huh. and now not so much. You know, working with livestock, you can't have somebody come help you that has never had any kind of training. You know, they do need to understand how livestock have to be handled or need to be handled. You know, and for your safety and for the for the safety of livestock also. So do you see if, because I do think there's like a good, the pandemic's been fascinating in terms of just kind of how it shifted, you know, the whole world, you know, but one of the areas where we're seeing it very acutely is, you know, just people wanting to do different things for their jobs. You know, I think that the pandemic was a very eye-opening experience about what your daily lived life was and is and could potentially be. And so do you see a greater investment of like training programs or if those programs were built, do you think that people would want to work more in livestock and kind of work in an agricultural capacity if that was available to them? Well, I think that is, I think that is a true. And we do have some programs, you know, there's, there's internships, you know, that some ranchers have that, you know, to bring people in and and try to train them. And and I've looked into that too. And it's a, it's a great thing, but it is a, you know, you train these people and they move on and which is a problem, you know, you can't keep them because they're talented enough that they, they'll outgrow you pretty fast, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. Are these generally homegrown folks or folks who are brand new to this industry? Just kind Probably of- a lot of them are, are brand new to the, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say they're brand new to the industry, but you know, they're came from a different part of the country probably. Uh-huh. I mean, it's funny. You're right. I agree with you that, you know, there's been like the Western tech boom that's brought, you know, a bunch of new folks to the West, you know, from you know, kind of urban city centers. But I also think there's also been kind of a back to the land boom in a, in a way too, you know, do you just look at the impact of kind of local farming and, and trying to get back to kind of like, you know, smaller, there's a whole trend of, you know, younger folks wanting to buy smaller parcels of land and having smaller operations. And I have someone scheduled to come up who just has like a hundred acre farm, you know, like a small farm that's primarily for the local market, you know, like a hundred mile radius of where, you know, their food's grown and served. I see that as a trend, but obviously it's not something that's scalable to, to a huge scale, but there is interest. And so from an outside perspective, it is not involved in the industry besides just kind of having a couple of clients who, who, who are producers. I'd oh. like to, you know, it's interesting to me to see that. And I'm kind of curious about what avenues there are for, for folks who are interested to kind of get more involved. Yeah. I've, I've always been interested in real estate, especially ag real estate. You know, and mm-hmm. and um, there's a lot of tremendous interest in, in land. And I, and I always said, you know, in real estate, you know, I've, I've never met a piece of land I didn't like, 
<laughs> some are better than others, but there's never been one that I didn't like because no two are the same. Uh-huh. It's, it's a really interesting business to be in. Yeah, yeah. And are you also seeing that shift? I had a podcast a little while ago with Mr. DeVry. Oh, Coulter, sure. Coulter, yeah. He's He had some very interesting perspectives about, because he's one of, he's a, a ranch broker in Montana. And so, you know, he's seen, he had some very interesting perspectives about kind of how the West has changed and is changing. Are you seeing that in North Dakota too? Kind we, of we, like a, we are, you know, I, I would like, you put it like a, you, you throw a stone into a pond that's, that doesn't have any wind and, and there's a ripple effect, you know, that yeah, oh yeah, that moves mm-hmm. out from there. And and right now, that Billings Bozeman area in Montana is like Bozeman is known as Zoomtown because so many yep. people have moved there during the pandemic. And then as land prices get too high for people to buy a little piece of land there, they will move farther away and they really can't go west because that land is a lot higher too. So western North Dakota is probably the next spot that's in line with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. How I mean, because North Dakota, are you like fourth in population in the country? You must be one of the one of the five top ten least populated states, I would think. We are, we are, in it, and we have a lot of you know. It was always a agricultural base, pretty much until although the energy boom in Boston over the years has has changed our demographics quite a bit, uh, also. But you know, we had a, a state that was pretty much mostly all homesteaded with small acreages, you know, one or two quarters at a time. There weren't very many big ranches or big farms that came in over the, you know, during the time it was settled, other than a few bonanza farms in the eastern part of the state. That's kind of gone on for over a hundred years. Um, and then as as people increased, you know, those one and two quarter farms and ranches became 10 and 15 and, you know, the normal cycle of how you, you need to have so many so much size to you know in conventional agriculture to make a living so that's kind of how that has worked yeah i have to tell you i have not yet been to north dakota it's on my list oh <laughs> yeah you're not that far away you know you're one of the no. West. you're in utah right yeah. we're in utah we're, but my parents live in livingston so we're that's you know we're halfway through halfway across montana oh okay and you really livingston mm-hmm. you've never been to north dakota huh I don't think that's so. interesting. Yes, that's why we they call us a flyover state, I guess. I wouldn't, yeah, I'm trying to think if I have. I don't think I have actually, though, but um, South Dakota, South. yes, not North. Um, okay, cool. Well, Lewis, you know, this has kind of just been a kind of a, a good check in and, and a good talk with kind of like someone who's on the ground. You know, what do you, is there anything that you wish that kind of like our listeners who are, you know, kind of a broad breadth of folks who are interested in water and interested in kind of like the broader picture of how, you know, the environment and our agricultural practices on the environment kind of affect things that, you know, you'd like them to know or, you, you know, you think that would be helpful to kind of be part of the bigger conversation? Well, I think some of the things that, that the uh, North Dakota Grazing Land Coalition does are are really, should really interest the general public, you know, mm-hmm. how, how we've tried to better our land, organic matter and wildlife and, you know, move towards a more sustainable, regenerative society out here in the, in the Northern Plains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's cool. It's fun to see projects that are like on the ground projects kind of making a difference. 
Well, Lewis, I think this is exciting. I'd like to maybe check in at some point in time and kind of see, you know, as you guys get, you know, your feet under you with you, some of the carbon sequestration projects and kind of you come to that price parity point where those activities really get off the ground. I'd love to check back in and kind of see how those go because I'm very curious about how that market's going to develop in the future. And I'm curious for a number of reasons. One, if it's actually going to happen. <laughs> and then two, it seems like it could be a really good benefit and win-win for everybody if it can be something that can be verified and um, useful and practical to use for, for, you know, the landowner. Sure. That, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, we'll talk to you then. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Mackenzie Nichols. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.